If you would please go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke, the book of Luke, chapter 23. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Perhaps this week you have sinned grievously against the Lord. And you can even now recount things that you have done or thought that you have, you're not hastening to announce to everyone else and you're ashamed of them. Perhaps there are things this week that you have done very well and you're, you're proud of for things that you, you've done and you say, I did this well, I did this well. At this time, all of those things, things you've failed in and things you've done well, I'd, li- I'd like for you to put them out of your mind. I'd like for you to take your eyes off of yourself, off of your performance, off of your failings, off of all of the things that you've known that have been against God, all, all the, the things that you have done that you know are, are, are sin, are failures. I'd like for you to put them out of your mind. And we're, we're going to go to a text. And what I, I want you to do with me is I want you to focus your mind upon this mighty Savior. And that's what we're going to do together. I want you to focus your mind on the Lord Jesus and how wonderful He is and how great He is. And how He is everything that we are not. How He has obeyed every law. And has has done what none of us could do. He paid for our sins. Think upon the Lord Jesus during this time. Now, I'm going to use a kind of a, just an example I know a lot of us were pretty adamant about saying, you know, we need to stay away from movies and things like that. Um, but we, we've all seen movies where the, or, or sto- read books or heard stories where there is a hero of the story. Uh, one of the things that comes to my mind is uh, there's a movie called Rudy, the young guy. He, he goes to, to Notre Dame and plays football. Um, and I remember growing up, every time I would watch that movie, I would cry. I like that movie, or there's, there's other, there, I can get, you can go on and on of examples. The reason why stories like that <clears throat> intrigue human beings is because there is one hero that we were made for. The lamb slain before the foundations of the world. A conquering, mighty Savior. And we're going to go now to this text where this conquering mighty Savior is doing, completing the final work that He came into the world to do. When He was born, you remember, He was given, given the name Jesus because he, he will save His people from their sins. From the very beginning, He came into the world and appeared with one mission, to come and to redeem His people. 
We're going to look at the last words of our Savior before he dies, where he is accomplishing this work of redeeming his people. Let's, let's first pray. Father, I ask at this time that you would remove all pride from us. If it be so, remove self-righteousness from our minds. Help us to focus. We cannot pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We are sinners. But we have a Savior who came into the world to save sinners. Your beloved Son, in whom you are well pleased, I pray, Father, at this time, you will show us your Son. Show us your glory and your grace that is put forth in him. Amen. Now we're going to focus on verse 46. Uh, but just for the context, I, I'm going to begin reading at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said these things, he breathed his last. Now there's a lot that could be said here from this text. As Paul was reminding me earlier, perhaps I'm not the one who could say a lot about this text. Um, but there is a lot here. Uh, this this portion of, of the crucifixion is, I mean, it's the, you could call it the Acropolis uh, of the Christian faith. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to draw out three things that I want us to consider about Christ's last words. I want you to consider these things with me. I'm broken up into three things. First, number one, in this verse we see that the Lord Jesus was obedient. In these last words of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see him praying, trusting, loving, and obeying the Father. He is sinless and obedient all throughout his life, even up until the moment he breathes his last. That's point number one. Number two, in this verse we see that the Lord Jesus was in control. In these words, he was in control. These last words of the Lord Jesus, he speaks them. We see that he is actively in control of his own life and death. He is a spotless lamb who is also a great high priest. The Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed himself. He gave up his own life. Number three, in this verse we see that the Lord Jesus was victorious. In these last words of the Lord Jesus, we see a work completed and victory accomplished. We see here that this loud cry is a cry of triumph. Now, just very quickly, um, 
just a little bit of setting. We should all be familiar with this portion of Scripture. Christ is nailed to the cross. Now, before this, there's been darkness that's covered for, for three hours over the whole face of the earth. The veil of the temple was torn in two. It's showing forth that the access into the presence of God has been won through what Christ is doing. And now the sun starts to open up again after being in darkness. And then Christ, he cries out these, these words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he dies. I want us to consider three aspects here of Christ's obedience. Right up front. I want you to consider, one, that this is prayer. He is praying on the cross. It's a prayer. Father. How do we know he's praying? Well, he teaches his disciples how we pray, right? Father. Hallowed be thy name. He's praying, Father. This is a prayer. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we see the Messiah here on the cross praying. That's, that, would be, that would be A, a point one. Um, and, and then we also, also want us to see that Christ is obedient in speaking Scripture. Um, the words that he says here is, is, is from Psalm 33. Everything he says here on the cross, he's, still, he's thinking according to the Scriptures. He's quoting Scripture. He is a man who knew the Scriptures even unto the point of death. He lived by the Scriptures. Um, and then the third aspect I want us to see in his obedience is here we see him obedient in his death, obedient in his dying, just as he had been appointed and sent into the world to do. So first, let's consider his prayer. He was a man of prayer. His entire life was marked by prayer. His entire life. Let's, let's turn over to Luke chapter 3. If you would, if you have, have it in front of you, look at verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, and was praying... The heavens were opened. Just want you to focus there. Here at the beginning of his ministry, as he's being baptized, he is praying. He's praying. And, and we see this pattern again all throughout the Gospels, um, where all throughout his life, he's praying. Uh, and, and I'll just read, I had just a few proof texts. Um, we're, we're familiar with Christ's prayer life. Mark 135. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Mark 6.46, he left for the mountain to pray. Luke 5.16, Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Luke 6.12, he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Luke 22.32, he says, I have prayed for you. Um, then we have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Mark, Matthew 26 says, Then Jesus with them came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. His entire life is one of prayer. One of prayer. We, we know the, um, we don't seem to take it seriously, but we, we know the exhortation of, of what Paul says 
in 1 Thessalonians. He says to pray without ceasing. Christ is the picture of what that looks like. He was a man who was always before God. Always in the presence of God. The last several times I've, I've preached, I have talked about prayer and communion with God. Christ was a man who prayed. He was always before God. He, did, he never neglected prayer. He never neglected prayer for his disciples. He prayed for his disciples. He was a, a praying man. Now, coming back to our text. I want you to consider the agony, the physical agony that the man, Christ Jesus, is in. He, he's been nailed to a cross, a, a, a wooden cross. There's nothing uh, soft here for him that he's nailed upon. He's got nails in his hands and nails in his feet. He has, he has thorns that's driven down into his flesh on his head. He's been scourged. He's been whipped. Physical agony Christ is in. Think about that. He is in agony. Not to mention the mocking and, the, and all of the things that are going on in front of him. He's, he's being mocked and taunted by sinners. But just the physical agony that he is in, consider that. And in the midst of that physical suffering, he prays. He doesn't seek himself. He doesn't, he doesn't get angry at God. He doesn't sin. But he prays. He is a man who prays. You see Jesus praying on the cross. If you look back at uh, 23, Luke 23, look at verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He, he's, he's praying while he's in agony. For those that have nailed him upon the cross. Then we have Matthew 27, 46. You don't have to turn there. It says, And about the ninth, ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lamai Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ, and what we would say is the is the peak of the Father turning his, his face away from the Son where Christ is bearing the full wrath of the Father, drinking it down to the dregs. He prays. It's another prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's still praying. He's a man who prays. And then again, back to our text. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Even up until his last breath, he prays. His entire life, from the beginning to the end is a life of prayer and devotion to God. He was never not found praying. He never forgot God. He never disobeyed. He always lived in perfect obedience to the Father, always praying. Now, let's consider His speaking the Scripture here. Christ's relationship to the scripture. We know he is the word of God. Jesus is a man of the scriptures. He is a man who thought according to the scriptures. Spoke according to the scriptures. Everything he did was in perfect obedience to the scriptures. There, there's so many. There's a lot of places you could go to Psalm 119. To, to, to show forth 
what the how Christ manifests his relationship to the scriptures. I think the, the best place to go would be Psalm 1. Psalm 1, he, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That is the Lord Jesus. Now, that's not to take away from the fact that this is what, this should be the characteristic of every Christian. But we don't do it perfectly because we're sinners. The Lord Jesus meditated on the law of the Lord day and night. Day and night did it perfectly. Never walked in the counsel of the wicked. Never stood in the way of sinners. Ever. He did it perfectly. And we see that when we read it with our Christological lenses. Just from what we have in the Gospels, where Christ is, not, you know, I didn't count each one of these. I Googled it. It says 45 times we have Jesus referencing the Old Testament himself. And that's not counting the times where the, the same portion is mentioned in multiple Gospels. Um, he, he was a, a man who knew the Scriptures. Um, look, at me, look with me to uh, Luke chapter 2. Verse 41. Showing the, the beginnings of, of Christ's life while he's in his youth. Luke 2 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went. A day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Where does this understanding come from, right? It comes from the scriptures. Even as a boy... A young 12-year-old boy. He knew the Scriptures. He, he understood the Scriptures. He spent time in the Scriptures. He was able to reason from the Scriptures. He was a man of the Scriptures. Uh, Christ, tempted in the wilderness. How does, he, how does he respond to Satan? Right? He says, Matthew 4.4, 4, it is written. Matthew 4.7, it is written. He says again, it is written. That's how he responds. His every thought and his everything he did, and what we see here in Luke 20, 23, 46, even up until the point of his dying, his entire life, he thought perfectly in accord with the scriptures. He loved the scriptures. Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. In Luke 23, 34, as we just read. He, he would have known very well how, how that was in line with Isaiah 53. Where it says he made intercession for the transgressors. As he hung upon the cross, he made intercession for the transgressors. Luke 23, 43. Speaking to the dying thief. You can see that there in your Bibles. Just right up above what we just read. 
And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Surely it was on the mind of Christ that he is the one who's doing what Adam failed to do. Where God made Adam and put him, put him in a paradise, put him in Eden. But Adam's, because of Adam's sin, he was cast out of the garden. And here, here is Christ reconciling sinners back to himself. That would have been on his mind. He's speaking according to the scriptures. He always spoke according to the scriptures. John 19.26. Again, you'll have to turn there. This is another saying. We have seven sayings recorded for us in the Gospels of what Christ said from the cross. John 19.26. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Behold your son. And there we see Christ obeying the command to honor your father and mother. Always obeying the scriptures. Even unto the point of death. And then again, Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lamai, Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we all should know that those are the words of Psalm 22, 1. He spoke the scriptures even as he died. John 19, 28, Jesus on the cross saying the words, I thirst that the scripture might be fulfilled. Remember in Psalm 22, he speaks out, his, his tongue is dry, he's clean, he's thirsty, his tongue is, is dried up, clean to his mouth. Here he thirsts. And then Psalm 69, it says that they would, they would give him vinegar to drink. Christ knew all of these scriptures, and everything he said was perfectly in accord with the Word of God. The Word of God that he spent his life saturated in. He never neglected to read his Bible. Never did. John 19.30 When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He knew the Scriptures. He knew that it was finished. He knew that every shadow, everything that was in the ceremonial law, everything that pointed to Him, all of the types and all of the shadows, he knew that it was being fulfilled and it is finished. He knew it. He knew the scriptures. And then coming back again to our primary text, Luke 23, 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These, what I would say are the very last words of the Lord Jesus from Psalm 31. I'm sorry, I think I might have said Psalm 33 before. Psalm 31.5. It's a psalm of David. Into your hand I commit my spirit. It's showing forth that he was trusting in God. Completely trusting in God to keep his covenant. Completely trusting in God to give him everything that, that he has won. That he would enter into his kingdom. Trusting in God. But again, I, just, I want us to see that. That even in his last words, he's speaking the scripture. Thinking according to the scripture. So two aspects we've considered now of his obedience. He's praying, and he's a man who's speaking the scriptures, as he did throughout his whole life. And the third aspect I'd like us to consider here in his obedience is his dying. Just as he had been appointed and was sent into the world to do. 
just as he did throughout his whole life, even here on the cross, Christ does the will of the Father. Even here on the cross, he's trusting the Father. He's trusting the Father. Now before I move on, I want you to consider that faith. And there's a lot could be said, and we'll get to more in the application, but just consider the faith of trusting God. Think of all the times when you have not trusted God. And now, moving away from that, look at this one who even in death, even the death of the cross, he does not cease to trust God. Does not cease to trust Him. John 6, 38, Christ Jesus tells us, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Matthew 26, 39, Christ praying in the garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It was the Father's will that Christ would come into the world and die on Calvary's cross. That was always the will. It was the, will from, it was the plan of God from eternity. But He comes into the world and He obeys the Father. He does what He was sent to do. It's exactly what Christ did. And that's what we see Christ doing in our text as He utters these last words hanging upon the cross. Hebrews 9.26 He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. He came into the world to sacrifice Himself, making atonement for sin, and that is what He does. He didn't come into the world for something else. He didn't come into the world to merely be an example. He didn't come into the world to be a social revolutionary, social justice warrior. He didn't come into the world for, for anything else. He came into the world to die. And that is what He did. And that's what we see Him doing here. Hebrews 5, if you would please turn in your Bibles with me there. Hebrews chapter 5. Find it. Hebrews 5. Starting at verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And then he focused, this is what I want us to focus on. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also, in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God appointed Christ the office of high priest. God did it. God appointed him to the office. He made him a high priest. And Christ did the work that had to be done. He did it. We are reminded here in Hebrews 5 of that, that just as... As the Levitical priests in the Old Covenant had to be appointed by God, Christ Jesus also did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God himself. And even until the last moment of his dying breath, up until he breathes his last, 
He is an obedient high priest doing what he was appointed to do. He is in perfect obedience unto God. He had a duty to do that he was appointed to, and he executed that duty perfectly. Perfectly. Now, we, as we've been reading in the mornings, I'm always, and I think we're all always taking notice. If we don't take notice of anything else in the old ceremonial laws, we always notice how specific things are. How particular everything had to be in the, the, the blood shedding of the bulls and the goats. How particular everything had to be. How much more so with the Son of God. And yet he did it perfectly. He did exactly what was required to redeem his people. He did it. Now that, that brings us to our second point. In this verse we see that the Lord Jesus was in control. In these last words of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see that He is actively in control of His own life and death. He is a spotless Lamb who is also a great high priest. The Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed Himself. Now, anyone can see this. It's very clear. A child can, can see these things. It's in the words, Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit. He gives up His own soul. He gives up His own life. No one takes it from Him. No devil, no man, the Romans and the Jews, they could not take his life. But he had control of his life. He had control of his death. Matthew 27, 50 says he yielded up his spirit. He yielded up his own spirit. He, John 19, 30, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I want our focus here to, to be on just this very thing, the active control that Christ has over his life. He died when he wanted to. If you remember early in his ministry, when he stood up, when he stood up in the synagogue, remember back in Luke 4. Let's turn there. Luke 4, 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now there, very early in Jesus' ministry, we have a whole synagogue who's raised up and is ready to, to hurl him off of a cliff and kill him. But Jesus is in complete control. It was not his, he was not going to die there. He walks right through them. They could not kill him. Jesus was fully in control of his own life and death. What we see in these final words of the Lord Jesus is, is that he died. When, when he died, he accomplished what he came into the world to do. He didn't die before that. He died when he wanted to die, when he did the work. And when he accomplished everything, he died. When he is ready, he died. He gave up his own life freely on his own accord. He called on his father and he says, I'm, I'm going to die now. I'm going to die. And more, but more than that, what we see here, he's saying, this is finished. I am done. I have dealt with this. 
I'm ready to enter into my kingdom now. And he dies. And he dies immediately after saying these things. He does these things and he dies. It's, it's remarkable how immediate it is. So much so that, that we, if we go on and read that the Jews there, they, they went back smoting on their breasts. Something supernatural is going on here. This man who we have crucified, for one, he's, he's quoting Psalm 31. He's trusting in God. He has peace with God. And he says, Father, I commend my spirit. And he dies immediately. It's amazing. If you, one of the things that, that um, I'm often reminded of is how Noah on the ark, oftentimes what we hear in, uh, what we heard in Sunday school or what we heard, what we read in, in children's books is so much different than the actual biblical account. If you remember, when, uh, when the bird comes back with evidence that there's dry land, they still had to wait seven days before they could get off the ark. I bet that was a very long seven days. Here, the Son of God doesn't wait. He doesn't wait. When it's done, He's done. He's out of here. Because He is in control. Completely in control. <clears throat> now, if you would turn over to Matthew 16. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Christ, here, we, we see way before he goes to Calvary, way before he's taken into the hands of sinful men, before he, he's taken and arrested, he's telling his disciples way beforehand exactly what is going to happen. He's telling them this is going to happen. That's a man that's in control. That's a man that's in control. And, and, and with that, Peter, who says, well, this is not going to happen to you. We're not going to let this happen to you. He tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance. We see that the Savior, He doesn't just go to the cross, but He's hastening there. He's ready to go there. He's ready to go to the cross. He's ready to go. It's something that He hastened to do. He wasn't a mere victim of men, but rather He gave Himself over into the hands who were to crucify Him. But He did it with zeal. He gave Himself over to the work, to what must be done. He gave Himself over but he wasn't a mere victim. I, I do believe that we have a, a as you know, as the man says, we have a, a, a sissified view of of Jesus when it comes to this point. We often talk of him him volunteering as though there was some opportunity that he wasn't going to volunteer, or we think of him enduring this as though he was right on the point of breaking somehow, or he, he put up with this like like. like this wasn't something that he just merely endured, but rather something he set his face to. Amen. Like a champion. Yeah. Like a warrior going into battle. And he did what he was sent to do. Right. He did it. He was not overpowered. And he was never in any way a coward. That's right. And again, just another point of application there. 
Think about all the times when you have been a coward. And then again, put that out of your mind and look back at this mighty Savior. Look back at this one who's never a coward, never any shadow of turning away, never any shadow of doubting God. But he did what he was sent to do, and he did it with zeal. He was not merely led to the slaughter, but rather he gave himself to be led to the slaughter. Luke 9, 51. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He steadfastly set his face to go to the where he would be crucified. Yep. Think about that. What does that look like? We think of a man, I mean, it's, we think of a man hard at work. A man is going into battle. Um, we don't know much of, of war. Not all of us. I know there's some of us who have been in the military. We know men who play at war and play silly games. Think of a, a man going, it's a stupid example, but a man going onto the football field, going to, 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 to conquer some work, and he's determined to do it. He's going to do it. He's not going to be turned away. Like a, like a, like a, like a steed. Like a mighty horse going in to battle. That's the Lord Jesus hastening to the cross to do the work that he was sent to do, completely in control. Completely in control. He didn't simply endure the cross, he hastened to the cross. He is a king and set his face to his work, and he conquered all that had to be done. It was his duty to die. And he discharged his duty. It was the duty that the Father appointed him to. It was, the father, it was the duty that the Father sent him into the world to do. And he did it. He discharged it perfectly. He was actively obedient in his death. As I've already said, he's in control. He's in control. He gave his own life. Galatians 1.4 who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. Galatians 2.20, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. I, I could go on, but again, I'm, I know I'm running out of time. There's so much that can be said here about this mighty Savior who's in perfect, complete control. And we see that in our text. That he's giving up his life. When it's time for him to die, no one takes his life from him, but he gives up his own life. It was more than passive endurance. Yes, we see the glory and the power of God in the resurrection. We see the glory and the power of God in the ascension and Christ sitting down and being enthroned. But we see the glory and the power of God also here in Christ being crucified. We see the power of God here. That Christ did these things. He did not shrink back. He did it perfectly. He set his face to it and he accomplished the work. It is his duty as a priest to die. He is a priest in control here. He offered up himself, Hebrews 7, 27. He wasn't just the sufferer, although he suffered. But he was also the offerer. 
also the offer. Now that leads me to a last point. And again, this, is, this will go a little bit quicker. In, in this verse, we see that the Lord Jesus was victorious. In these last words of the Lord Jesus, we see a completed victory accomplished. We see here that this loud cry is a cry of triumph. I want us to compare these two phrases that we see Christ say on the cross. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Versus our text here, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Let's compare the two. When he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see the Father with his face turned away. Where Christ is bearing the fullness of the wrath that should be poured out on his people. And he's enduring that. And then we come now to after this three hours of darkness and we see triumph. That he has done the work. He has done the work that had to be done. And the sun comes out. And again, we see what appears to be a restored fellowship with the Father. It most certainly is. It says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It's showing forth that the work is done. It's showing forth that salvation has been bought. That everything that he went to Calvary to do, he has done it. He has, he has, he has taken the wrath upon himself and he has dealt with our sin. That is what has happened. I'd like you to just consider what this tells us. It tells us, first of all, that in this sacrifice, the Father is pleased. He's pleased. Christ has done all things well. Again, as we've already said, as I've already said, you know, if one thing is off here, something doesn't happen according to plan, there's no payment for sin. It had to be this way, the way that Christ did it. It couldn't be any other way. And he did it perfectly. Did it perfectly. And the Father is well pleased. We see restored fellowship with the Father. He prays to the Father. And he says, Father, into your hands. I commend my spirit. It's, it's, it's showing forth that, Father, I'm giving all who I am into your control. Take my soul. Everything I have is yours. He's trusting God. He's completed the work. He also tells us that there's no more wrath for those who are in union with Christ. No more punishment for those who are united with this Savior. This Savior has bore the wrath. He's dealt with the sin. We've seen it here. And He's came out on the other side. This champion dealt with our sin and came out on the other side in restored fellowship with the Father. He is the only one that could do it. It's amazing. Only the eternal Son of God could bear such wrath. And He did it. He did it perfectly. And now there is no more wrath for those that are united to Christ. And again, it tells us that there's victory here. Everything that He set out to do, He did. He failed at nothing. He's failed at in no point. There's nowhere we can look and say, well, He struggled here. He struggled here. We can say, we can, we can look at men throughout the scriptures and we can say, well, they were, they were godly men, but they struggled here. 
Noah got drunk. David was a murderer and an adulterer. Moses was a murderer. I mean, there's so many things. Men, we, we can, Moses, like, I was just right, he struck the rock. He couldn't go in to the promised land. He couldn't do it. Christ has none of those moments. Throughout the entirety of his life, even until the point of death, he is Yahweh's perfect servant. Perfect in every way. Completed everything he set out to do. No failure. Victory belongs to our king. He is a victorious, conquering king. Our king went into battle and he conquered his enemies. It's promised in, all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that he would come and he would conquer Satan and he would restore fallen man back to God and that's exactly what God has done in Christ Jesus. Exactly what God has done. Now, really quick, just by way of application. The application is simple. I've hinted at it several times until now, up until now. But consider all of your failures. Consider your lack of prayer. Have you neglected prayer just this week or last week, the week before that? Are you ashamed because of your lack of prayer? Or, or, or maybe the time that you spend on prayer, you know it's not sufficient. Maybe you spend time in prayer, but you get up and your mind wanders to other things. You go to the prayer place, you go through your, your ritual, and then you get up and your mind is on everything else. Three, four hours later, you've forgotten God. I'd like you to consider that Christ is for you. Christ is for you. This one who always was in a state of prayer is for you. He is for you. He did it all for you. He came and he is for you. Maybe you struggle with Bible reading, scripture reading. Maybe you don't think according to scriptures. You're struggling and you're ashamed and you're doubting and all these things. And maybe you have good reason to doubt, but I want you to, I want you to hear this. There is one for you and there was never a time in his life when he did not love the word of God. You've neglected the scriptures, but he never did. You spent your life not praying. You spent your life outside of the word of God, but Christ never did. And he is for you. His obedience is imputed to you by faith. Where the Father looks at you as though... You had Christ's prayer life. As though you had Christ's relationship to the scriptures. Christ is for you. I'd like you to consider his obedience in every aspect. And think about how you fail. And consider that he has done what you have not. Think about that. We heard this morning uh, about how we don't want to waste the calling that God, what God has called us to. We don't want to waste our gift, but perhaps you have. Christ never wasted anything that he was appointed to do. Never. He did all that he was called to do and he did it perfectly. He was a preacher perfectly his whole life. He was, he was a man who did what God called him to do and he, and he brought glory to the Father. I'd like you to consider that there is one 
who you can look to. This one is for you. Christ is for you. That's what I want you to see. Nothing else. You have not, but he has. His robes for mine. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Every one of them. But his righteousness is ours by faith. His righteousness is ours by faith. And he is one who's righteous all the way into the point of death. Up until he breathes his last, he's a man that's righteous. He doesn't shrink back. He doesn't become a coward. He doesn't fail. Have you failed under the point of pressure? Have you failed to share the gospel with your family members? Have you trampled underfoot the Son of God? Have you sinned against the Lord who you know loves you and died for you, and yet you continue to do wrong? We have one who never did that. The Lord Jesus never did that. The Lord Jesus always loved the Father. The Lord Jesus, all the things that you are lacking, Christ did them all. He did them all perfectly. Perfectly. And He is ours. He is our head. If we can be united to Him by faith. Let's pray.